You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Joining up to the Comedians Comedian podcast Insiders Club at ComediansComedian.com slash Insiders makes you feel special and cool and it's easy to set up, it's even easy to cancel and if you have any difficulties you can email me directly and I personally walk you through it. So you can listen to all the extra content in a very simple way once it's set up. All the extras just ping onto your device without needing you to do anything else. You know, like a private podcast. So this is a little extra treat for everyone who supports the show. If you're swamped with podcasts or pushed for time, you can still support the podcast. Just sign up anyway, ignore all the extras, and get a hassle-free, warm, fuzzy feeling that lasts forever. Don't miss out. Become an insider at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is the only podcast about comedy. And today we are talking to John Luke Roberts, who was responsible for one of the best and most compelling pieces of comedy I think I've ever seen in 25 years of going to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, we will talk about it at length, but uh, he always does very quirky, interesting work that marries a sort of absurdist sensibility and a very silly physical clowning element with some very, very technical and cerebral joke writing. He's a real conundrum, I think, John Luke. And um, he did this show called Stadad Up, um, which is uh, uh, typically idiosyncratically titled about the death of his dad. But as we will hear, it is pretty much unlike every other stand-up show about the death of one's father, even the ones where the person involved doesn't necessarily like their father. There's a lot to pick through here. There's some extra content from this one as well, which I will mention to you in the middle bit. But for now, let's get our teeth into John Luke Roberts. So, where the fuck to begin with you? Um, why don't you tell us, for people who don't know you, what you think you are? What I think I am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who are you? Um, who are you and what do you do? Let's begin John with Roberts. Uh, I would describe myself as a, an absurdist comedian, I suppose. I mean, that is an excellent starting point, because... Uh, You're an absurdist comedian, you suppose. Have you always been an absurdist comedian? I think I've always... Yes and no. I've always considered myself one. I think I'm prone to writing non-absurdist jokes. I naturally 
head towards the logic, head towards everything being neatly wrapped up, tied. Uh, you know, the, the way you can look at a the way you can look at a one-liner, and it's sort of the only piece of writing you can prove works because it's almost like an equation. I'm prone to that. I love the stuff where the logic is hidden. You don't know why it makes sense, but it does. It appeals to something deeper. It doesn't add up. That seems sort of more truthful. So that's what I have spent time working towards and working against my proneness to uh, neat little surdist stuff, I guess. That must be the word. Surdist, the opposite of absurdist. I I I don't know what it is, actually. Um, Because you can't have realist jokes, can you? (laughs) (laughs) I... I'm fascinated. I think this is a really good starting point because one of the things that fascinates me about you, one of the things is that I have known you and your work long enough to have seen it change mm-hmm. in a really exciting way. Mm-hmm. And another thing that is fascinating about you is that you're, it's precisely that. You in your practice now are a, a really exciting combination of precisely that, of a very... Like I, I, I see you, I suppose, and my preconceptions aren't necessarily right at all, but I, I think my pre- preconceptions about you are that you started off being a furrowed brow type writer, like a, a young man who burned with the desire to express the world through his writing. And then you became really silly and started really enjoying, not just silly, not just daft, but like absurdist with all the danger and darkness and surrealness that 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 can take I'd like to think broadly that's yeah that's the journey I think I've gone on I would say like silly is I don't think of you caught yourself saying silly there but actually silly is no worse than absurdist like silly is something to be proud of I think (laughs) yeah absolutely but if if I think of the, the the bit of your work that I have been most excited by it was your show Stood Dad Up yeah which was two years ago or three years ago it's going to horrify. No, it, well, the, you know, oh, the, it can be, can't it? You know, it? the it's tricky time. thing with this, it's also the way I work it out is remembering when my dad died. <laughs> That's when I made that show. Uh, 2015. No, no, yeah, three years. Okay. Come on, three. Yeah. That show was one of the best things I've seen. Oh, thank you. It really was. And I've seen a lot of stuff. And I, <laughs> I, I remember I sat there with my partner and we were clutching each other laughing and scared. And I remember thinking, this is an entirely new state that John Luke Roberts has put me in. Mm. I am laughing and I'm scared. So let's let's start with that show and, sure. and that reaction to that show as a means of looking at the you know the rest of the journey. Mm-hmm. So the show was about the death of your dad, yeah. but it was as unlike any show about the death of someone's father as I've ever seen. Yeah, so it was about the, um, yeah, it was about him, it was about my dad, and I made it after he died, and it was about him dying, and it was about the, I mean, it was part of the grieving process. Um, I remember the moment the idea occurred to me, I sort of knew I would end up making a show about him dying, because he was dying for quite a long time, and there were lots of sort of false, uh, I was going to say false starts, but of course false ends. Stops, yeah. and I, I knew this would had a very difficult relationship with him. Um, him. Him being alive was very difficult for people. It was making people's life, but it was making people I loved lives harder. So there was this weird tension of sort of just waiting for that relief of it. Um, and because 
there's all that catharsis. I guess that I, in the back of my head, I sort of knew, well, I won't be able to not write a show about this. That's what that show will end up being. And then I remember having the idea of, well, how could I do something interesting? And hitting on the idea of, what if I dressed up as my dad and performed the show as him? And I thought, oh, God, you can't do that. And that's when I knew I had to do it because the idea was so compelling to me. And I laughed, and it was that naughty laugh, you know, of the sort of devil telling him, do this, little thing. And that's when I uh, knew that's sort of what I had to do. The process of putting it together was... um, well I suppose I write on stage a lot and that's really I think the about the period I learned that that was one of the best ways for me to put together a full show was to go on stage not knowing Um, because generally I like to be in control so much that it's a real relief not to be and you find things suddenly which uh, you would never have worked out on the page by being but going on stage with that not knowing meant dying a lot and to have an audience looking at you blankly or, or having not enjoyed to die like that, it really felt like, oh, God, is this worth it? Is it worth, like, betraying my dead dad for this? Like, if, am I... And it felt like it was more offensive because it wasn't funny. <laughs> like, it was less something you should be doing. Yes. I feel we should explain to the listener what this show looked like and what okay, we were right, doing. Yeah. The so the, the shape of the show was... I came on I think it opened with a sort of with a lip sync and a strip a sort of strip I took my clothes off and this was calculated the idea was well if I to be able to win the audience's trust to let me do this I need to make myself as vulnerable as possible um I also was careful like I I made a fake pixelated thing to put over my penis because I always think as soon as you get your actual dick out there's this element of you want me to look at your dick yeah yes i will absolutely and, you, and you're less vulnerable somehow sure because everyone gets used to it so quickly so actually this kind of humiliating little patch that's I a very good point managed to keep me genuinely vulnerable during this whole but and i was doing a i think i was reading out a philip larkin poem but with lots of false stuff and saw just how long I could drag out this Philip Larkin poem. And the threat of the little pixelated patch falling off yeah, yeah, yeah. M- makes there be a genuine threat in yeah. the room where the woo! Yeah, moment, exactly, you know, exactly. And if provided that doesn't happen, then you are... Yeah, that's really interesting because sometimes you do see people uh, with their dicks out on stage, uh, often men, and uh, you you don't consider... like It almost looks like they're going, see how vulnerable I am. Uh, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry I just remember I don't want to oh well um, just to log it while I remember it I do yeah. remember and I have seen like one of my, the funniest things I've ever seen was a nude scene uh, in a clown show yeah um, but I do remember at clown school um, Philippe Gaulier after somebody had done this nude reveal in a clown thing said when he had his dick out was anybody looking at his nose <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so what do you what do you mean by that? Why, like I don't quite get the inference. Like the the fact of him having his dick out, just the whole scene became about his dick. Yeah, yeah. I, to me, I took that as the. Of course, a clown can be naked, and it can work really well. But a lot of the time, you want you you, you there's just this suspicion of. People with really good bodies getting naked on stage yeah. seems yeah. not to be it's quite to the point. It's exactly to the spirit of clowning yeah, somehow. It's, there's yeah, a, there's that element. Obviously, there's an element of showing off to all of this, but it does put you in that... I don't... It's very rare. 
I see somebody on stage naked and think, brilliant, you, you are really embarrassed by doing that and it's hilarious that you're embarrassed and you really enjoy being embarrassed about it, but you're embarrassed and that's the spirit that needs to happen. Sure, sure. Um, you enjoy it. That is a really, that's a very insightful thing about clowning generally. You're really embarrassed by this, but you're enjoying that you're really embarrassed yeah, and yeah. so we're enjoying it. Yeah. That's a real nugget, I think, yeah. Yeah, I okay. think so. Um, so I, I did that and then I, I told the audience about my father uh, in various different ways about, uh, and did all this while getting into his costume. For a while, the audience not, didn't necessarily know that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was careful to sort of tell them enough so that they would be happy with me uh, attacking him, mm-hmm. uh, but not so much that I'd be telling any stories that weren't mine to tell. Uh, so this is all done while I was building, I was filling my... I, he was very, he was morbidly obese when he died. Um, and uh, I had an old suit of his. And so I'd, I put on his trousers, I filled them with balloons, had an audience member help me. Um, and sort of got into this point that the kind of hectoring, controlling thing with the audience member, which would then really feed into all the stuff I did with my dad later. Um, eventually, get into full costume, tell the audience what I was doing just before I did it. Now, most of them probably already knew, but that act of, and I, I was, I had to keep making them. I couldn't make them too comfortable with it, and I couldn't make them too uncomfortable with it because obviously, comedy is all about the release of tension, and. I had to keep the tension high enough for them to know this, you shouldn't be doing this, but low enough for them to still not just walk out yes. or not just sit their arms folded or, or you know, say, well, I can't laugh at this, this is appalling. So getting that balance right was, I, I sort of set that up verbally, I suppose, as much as anything. I, mean, I didn't tell them that's what I wanted them to do, but I felt like I got them into a position to do that. I left the stage before I put his mask on, his mask being a fake beard and a pair of glasses and some big plastic teeth was it was it a stiff beard was yeah, it was almost it was, like a half it was like a chin mask yeah it was cardboard with a cardboard with black fun fur stuck on it okay um uh, attached to the glasses so yes you just slip it on yes it, uh, it reminded me a little bit of a vic reeves caricature drawing i, I think that was probably in the back of my mind sure okay um and stuck the teeth in well I, it was quite important with the costume that there had to be the emotional connection here Obviously, I was never going to be able to do a realist version of him, but you had to see me all the time. That's something I've taken on since then. But the costume looked like a costume, and it looked like I was playing at being my dad. Uh, so it wasn't a good false beard. It wasn't even yes. an elastic false beard. Yes. It all just kind of it gave the image, and you still saw me through it. So I went off, and then I put on his voice and introduced him. I, I think I introduced him in his voice. Well, anyway, and then I came on as him and spent probably about 40 minutes largely insulting the audience um, with... Uh, and this was something I'd been doing for years, these insults. Uh, I, it was a form of joke that I went, oh, if I write this, that these... Are, it's basically one-liners, but hidden as insults. It never really worked as me. And I kept doing it because I think... Oh, I don't know, a, a 20-year-old, 20-something white man standing on stage, like, nothing particularly... Um, being really cocky and really aloof and I tried to undercut that all the time but it just didn't really the jokes would work on their own but sometimes men would get very angry doing it as my father in a suit made of balloons immediately only cuts everything and you know the game is that I'm being authoritarian I'm being aggressive I'm being horrible and you go along with it while still experiencing it there's that enough of that wink for it to be okay it's not pure aggression because that's horrible to sit through you know this is a game and we're 
we're in it. This is a game, and it's a really frightening game. I yeah. was scared. You were screaming at, you were barking at us mm-hmm. in this Birkenhead accent to apologise. That kind of that's the bit. Oh I remember, yeah, my the key's catchphrase. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I remember painted a picture of your dad as this kind of controlling uh-huh. monster, mm-hmm. and the fact that you, his son, were prepared to portray him like that spoke to a sort of a. Uh, an, an interior life that we were getting to see a cartoon version of but at the same time like I said me and my partner were clutching each other like giggling and terrified and you really put us in a, in a place that I've never been in before when the show really worked and I say I actually it did get to the point where it, this happened every time I think uh, certainly by the time I was doing the London run every night was pretty much like this, there would be somebody laughing, somebody appalled, and somebody crying at the same time. The audience would be made up of all these different reactions simultaneously. And I think that leaves the audience in a place of just not knowing quite what to do, of genuinely not knowing what the response is meant to be. And so there is this kind of real release of tension. And that's... the. I think, it, you know, the Steve Martin thing where he wouldn't let the audience know where the laugh was meant to come, so then the hysteria just builds yes. because the tension's popping all over the place. Okay. I th- it was another way, I think, of getting towards that sort of thing. And you mentioned earlier on that you were... It was a betrayal of your father. And I remember at the time, the two things that stuck out is that you... You, it, you revealed it was his actual suit. And that was an uh, yeah, incredible yeah, reveal yeah. of people like, oh, my God. And... I also remember, I think, I don't know if you said it on stage or if we said it, you said it to me afterwards, but I remember you saying that he didn't, he lost that accent. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, I did say it on stage. That's on stage. I let the audience into that about halfway. Yeah, there was a point when I told them and then it became a fuck you to him because he got rid of it so he would be, he always said, I got rid of the accent because I got rid of the Liverpool accent because I wanted people to trust me. And so I gave it back to him. As a sort of punishment for that. So, talk about punishing your father. Yeah. What is that? What did that mean to you? Did your family see the show? My my mum did very very early on, like the third night in Edinburgh. I could really have done with it not being that early in Edinburgh. Um, she, I mean, I told you know, I asked her permission, uh, and I wouldn't have done it if she'd said no. At the same time, I can't really imagine her saying that. Um, my sister didn't see it, uh, and I think we, we, my, we wouldn't have liked it. Um, we, it was sort of a, an understanding that she, she wouldn't see it. Uh, she did see my next show where I kind of carried that character. I turned him into a different sort of a different character, mm-hmm. uh, and that was fine. But I, it's only like going back to... I played my dad again recently and suddenly realised how different those two characters... I thought I was just playing my dad as a vampire, and yeah. it turns out... Two completely different characters. Yes. And the um, vampire then, presumably that the character that went yeah, on to be the he, portent of death. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. the portent of death in the last one. Um, sorry, where was I? Uh, punishing your dad. Oh, punishing dad. your dad. It's one of many, like, there's obviously lots of conflicting and overlapping emotions and different things. It's certainly not a pure betrayal, and I think there's lots of other things that partly thinks he'd like the show if he saw it. Um, obviously, that's not possible. Uh, in many ways, I didn't betray him. I, like, there's lots of. I think of the show really as the 
version of the nightmare version of him that as a four-year-old I saw. Okay. The sort of bigger uh or bigger actually is the word, the this monster, this ridiculous uh unreal thing. Um and I think it I I do think that character that portrayal of him caught a real truth about him, certainly in a way I perceive him worse. But like his catchphrase, the way he'd, uh, well, he had two catchphrases. One was, uh, what was it? Um, it's not, <laughs> it's not bullying, it's, and the audience would have to shout, just teasing! Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> which uh, was actually, that would, he'd, he'd bully my grandfather on my mum's side. Well, my grandfather was old and start, starting to lose it, but he'd really bully him at sort of, uh, dinner table stuff and then afterwards he said well, it's not I wasn't pulling I was just teasing I was just, and he it wasn't the case um, and the other one was uh, apologise and the audience would have to say sorry to me normally after I'd done something horrible to them there was one bit in the show where I think I shout a an insult about Frankenstein's monster for about two minutes in somebody's face and then, and I've crawled over the audience to like get about a foot away from them, go to the stage, turn around, and make eye contact with them, and just say apologise. And they have to apologise. And there was one time this guy visibly hated this, like really wasn't getting into the spirit of the show. I failed on the front of getting him to understand this was a game. I, in my I sort of think, well, this is some fragile masculinity problem. Um, uh, and I had to make him apologise. And it took a long time. And he was there, arms folded, absolutely refusing to. But I knew that I couldn't... The whole game of the show would fall apart because my dad would make him apologise. Um, and And what did it... You said it was part of the the grieving process mm-hmm. making that show. Mm-hmm. What did it? What what part was it? Like, part of me kind of wants to ask how how like now if someone asked me to describe your dad, I would say, well, he was this monster. Do you know what I mean? So you, I feel like on some level you have publicly conveyed that your dad was a monster. Yeah. How much truth in that is there, and how much is that important? Well, to you I, or I, not? I think in the game of the show, I. Uh, game the right way probably is the show I don't think conveys that he was a monster it portrays that I saw him as a monster or that this was yes but but isn't that the same as saying I think no I don't think so because I kept myself in it all the time and me thinking as monster fine other people have different stories at no point was I trying to present the objective truth about my father I understand I was trying to present this part of my relationship with him. And it was a dominant part of my relationship with him, to be fair. Um, I don't think he was aware of it <laughs> um, because I was so scared of him that I didn't tell him much. And that was another element of doing the show was this final release of being able to talk about him yeah. in a way that I just hadn't when he was around. Um, so it was a part of the grieving process. You keep, I realise, you never really stop grieving. You keep coming back to it and finding new things which are there to be spoken about and worked out uh, and that show was very helpful at um, the the letting go part the um, the weird thing was it let me uh, it also let me I was fonder of him by the end of it and that was partly just that's amazing um, I partly because I changed him into something else 
But also, uh, I think that I, um, by playing around with his, with these elements of him, by bullying an audience, by being in control, by dominating, by being sadistic, by doing all these things, I was able to play with things which I was uh, always very keen not to. I was very keen not to be like him in my life, and so then this gave me a forum to find the points where I was like him and to find the enjoyment in these things and to, in a sort of, I suppose, safe space um, to do it. So I, before, I always used to think, say about my father, I had no idea what his interior monologue was. I could sit down and write most people's, well, I couldn't write their interior monologue. I could have a bash and think I'd come up with something reasonably convincing. I had no idea what his interior monologue was. And doing the show, I did at least start to... I think understand him a bit better. Um, I went back to... So I started doing a show this year um, where I play all my dead family members. <laughs> um, uh, which is a, a, a... The idea is it's a lifetime project, so I keep doing it for the rest of my life. Um, As the people in your family gradually die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I interview... Um, not to leave the dad show, um, but... Um, I think there's probably more to talk about with that show. So I'll just mention this about the new show. I came back to the dad character, realised, one, oh, he has to go at the very end because if you put him anywhere else, he'll just dominate everything mm-hmm. and I don't want the show to be about him. And then, because I'd filmed all my family, I'd filmed my living family talking about the dead ones. So the idea was that this show was me trying to build comedy characters from real memories to track how memory changes and how people remember people. Um, and then do it for a long time, so see how that alters as time goes by. Uh, and you have all these different family members saying nice things about everybody, like you do. And then you get to my dad, and I realised the game with his bit was him watching these videos and slow, like uh, starting at the beginning, going, "Oh, uh, like still trying to defend," and then realising nobody's saying anything nice. And it ended with him. with the audience shouting at him to apologise and with him saying sorry. And I, the point in rehearsal when I first did that, I just cried for about five minutes because I suddenly realised that how important that was and that it had never happened, that I was desperate for some apology from him or understanding mm. that he'd done something wrong. This is an extraordinarily kind of live therapy. Yes, but... Um, I sort of thought that before I started therapy. Uh, the problem with treating stand-up as therapy is that the audience never heckle with perceptive questions. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's good at the release part. It's good at a release. And I think actually probably emotional turmoil, uh, that kind of thing, is better at making good art than it is helping you, the performer. Yes. I think maybe it feels like it's helping. And it is helping to an extent. It's not enough. Yes, and I do. I feel like I, perhaps I don't need to further underline to the audience. I'm not accusing you of exploiting the audience for therapy because the show was superb. So had that been an unfunny show, you remember a moment ago we were talking about the early days when of it that was show, unfunny. Yeah, yeah. When it was unfunny, that felt like a, a betrayal of presumably. Actually, it did, did feel it betrayed the audience too. It, I, it was like I was letting everybody down. Um, it just was not worth it. Uh, and it's worst early on... Well, no, 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 actually, that's not quite true. <laughs> no, you could sink far deeper than uh, that. 
What I actually learned was that the the the, the less nervous, the less hedgy I was about doing it. It was when I was embarrassed or awkward to try this that it wouldn't work. As soon as I just went for it, and it really did feel like, well, I mean, I don't know if it really did, I've never done it, but it was like jumping out of a plane and just seeing if the parachute works, like genuinely going, right, I need to just run at this and, and go. And that feeling of adrenaline and just, I can't, I, can't, I can't think my way into this working. I need to just run at it. Early on, when I was building it and hadn't found the structure or any of the stuff, and in fact, before I started playing him, at the beginning days, I was just putting on his clothes and then trying it. And I wasn't doing a voice, and it wasn't... I, and somebody, an Italian friend, said... I don't know why I mentioned he's Italian. <laughs> I love it. Because I, I, <laughs> I was about to do the accent, and then thought, no, I don't feel like doing the accent. <laughs> so um, a friend said, it just feels like you're punching a dead man. And at its worst, it really did. And that's when I sort of learned, well, I have to let the audience know that, make the audience feel it's okay for me to do this. Mm. And then also build the show so that the show ended really with an argument between my father and me in a mirror um, where he got his say. Yeah, He had his side of the uh, argument. And it was also a way of of putting in his redeeming features, uh, which he he had. you know, so the thing, I suppose, ultimately, the show was about the conflict and the difficulty of um, of dealing with somebody you know you're meant to love who you sometimes hate and the the, 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 multi, the, the several people who exist within one person. You mentioned I had to make the audience do this. I had to have the audience do this. I had to make them do this. And you've mentioned the word control a few times <laughs> as well. This is, yeah, this is, it's, um, I only know, I was on a, I was doing an acting job a, a few weeks ago and somebody was asking me about my uh, comedy, my live comedy stuff. And we came back to, he started talking about it again, he said, you always talk about control, don't you? And it's honestly the first time I realised that, yeah, yeah, I do. And, um, and I think about building shows in terms of control, uh, and I'm suddenly, personally at the moment, really interested in that because I suddenly realise not everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I was listening to um, you speaking to uh, Julio Torres mm-hmm. uh, and his... Um, oh, I love that show. I it's was incredible. mesmerised by it. Yeah. It's just so beautiful, delicate. Like, what a perfect little... Uh, what a show. But the way he said, oh, I can't change gear, I can't... I don't... No, they either like it, I just carry on with it if they don't like it. I can't imagine doing that. Yeah. I can't imagine not building a show to get the audience to the point where they do get on board. Yes. To, to be thinking it about it in terms simply of, I think this is funny, I'm presenting this, and I'm going to do it. Rather than, I'm going to need a laugh here, and I'm going to need a laugh here. I can go without one now, but this is just really to build the tension up so that when I place this joke here, it gets this bigger laugh. Yes. I need the audience to be feeling this for this bit to pay off later. Now... I don't sit down and write this. I only work it out by being in front of an audience and building the show. And generally now, I think in terms of hours, uh, by going on stage and doing it. And the process of putting together is when I'm not in control. And a lot of time, that's sort of the most fun part for a while. But then there's a part where I go, no, I need to know this is going to work. And I need to control you and I need to make this all happen. But I'm very careful to make the audience feel like the show's slightly out of control. To make the audience feel yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they, they, if the audience thought this was controlled, it's yes. why I always, I, I always think, if you're doing a live show, 
it's got to feel live. Make the most of it being live. If too much feels like, oh, well, you're just doing a set text, mm. it needs to be happening in the room with you. And so I think the audience need to, certainly for what I'm doing and for absurdist stuff generally, I want them not to trust me, not to know that I'm quite capable of doing this so that they do have that feeling of, oh, God, this could go anywhere, like anything could happen, even though it can't. There we go. That was John. Let's get our teeth out of him briefly. Um, This is a a really fascinating conversation with an extraordinarily erudite and intelligent and very physical comic. So we'll get back to it very soon. Uh, There is extra material from John Luke uh, available at the Insiders Club from comedianscomedian.com forward slash insiders. Extras include the inside story on the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society and his mutually assured relationship with co-host Tom Tuck and John Luke's thoughts on why even though the highs of improv and musical comedy may be very high indeed, the entry level is pretty low. he, He doesn't express genuine hatred for improv, but uh, no, by no means. But we have an interesting chat about it. So uh, you can get all of those by joining the Insiders Club with a £2 a month donation or even higher. And hey, listen, let's get into this. Do you know I mentioned last episode? I think it was the last episode. Somebody had got in touch to really physicalise that sentiment I've often talked about on the podcast while soliciting your supportive donations. Um, I, I'm even talking like John Luke. I've been listening back to the episode and uh, now I'm saying things. Oh, there'll be some logos uh, log in a minute. Um, but uh, someone got in touch and I mentioned it last episode saying that they wanted to pay extra to join the Insiders Club so that somebody else could join the Insiders Club as well and that they would cover their, their, uh, their entry fee, if you like. They'd cover their subscription fee. We went ahead and did it. It was brilliant for everyone involved. And someone's done it again. And this person doesn't want to... I'm not saying they don't want to remain anonymous. They didn't make a song and dance about it. I felt last time, because the first donor wanted to uh, remain anonymous, I worried it sounded like I'd made the whole thing up. I mean, I'm a dirty street performer, and that's the sort of thing that the... That's the sort of thing a magician would do. Um, So there is a a, a nameable person who I asked if I could name. Thank you to Colin Murtagh. I hope I'm pronouncing Murtar correctly, um, for increasing his donation to pay for a fellow listener. I will get in touch with the fellow listener from one of the... I will choose if I think I've got someone in mind, someone who mentioned in a recent uh, thread on the Facebook group. So that's as good a reason as any other to join the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group. You might get cherry-picked as someone who will be the beneficiary of uh, a, a future donor who wants to help out someone who can't yet afford to subscribe to the show themselves, but still wants access to the private podcast and all the numerous goodies therein. Um, Recent additions to that include me being grilled by a lawyer called Claire Roby uh, about what barristers and her... She's she's a lawyer, she teaches lawyers what barristers can learn from stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians, um, and also the new episode of Comedy Critique, where we analyse and feedback on the work of comedian Peter Wilson, a 50-year-old diplomat... Incredible. Um, and then we have our first American listener, a new act called Ryan Sutton, who is throwing himself into the critique process. All of that and extras from this interview at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. So let's talk about one other thing, which is that the tour is almost done by the time you hear this, unless you're coming to the show at Tring, at the Tringe, the Tring Fringe. I, I mean, I will look forward to not needing to say that again for a year. Um, and the final show at Chapter in Cardiff, which is a fantastic arts centre in Cardiff, 
Um, thank you to everyone who has come along on the tour. I'll save the big end of tour thing until I've finished that. But the Soho Theatre one was tremendous. And uh, I, I think I might have mentioned last year, I, I didn't really struggle at Soho Theatre, but I didn't enjoy it quite so much. Uh, it was not as much as I was expecting to, because I think there there is a sort of higher density of fans per audience member in the regions, you know, whilst touring around. And then you get to London and you suddenly realise, oh, all these people had 20 options of fun things to do. And uh, so they're a little bit more um, uh, selective at which jokes to enjoy. So it was fun, but it was a little bit of an uphill fun time. This weekend, the one just gone, oh, it was all great and I loved it. And my single favourite moment of the whole thing was when someone, I mentioned France, and someone didn't heckle, they participated vocally with some reference to something that happened to France recently in the World Cup, which I didn't even know what it was. I mean, I'm sure they're in the World Cup, fine, but not a football guy. It was a big bunch of podcast nerddom fans And as a result, they commented something expecting everyone else would appreciate it. And literally no one understood what they were talking about. And we all laughed at their expense. Like, (laughs) read the room, mate. This is not a football crowd. It was a very lovely moment. So thanks to everyone who's been a part of that. Um, And just a little, I had a lovely uh, email from Tom Peach, who says, I've just subscribed. Love the show. Loved episode 250. I still have in my favourites your postamble where you say, I'm okay. So now I'm finally paying you for your work. I feel a bit cheap not having done it before, to be honest. Oh, Tom, come on, mate. This isn't, it's not, you don't have to. And uh, anyone that does is very much appreciated. So thanks, Tom, for doing that. Um, I don't need to direct you at the tour. I suppose I should just remind you that um, the new show, which previewed uh, the Bill Murray in London, in having announced it and got a crowd in less than 24 hours. Thank you to all 18 people who turned up and had effectively a drawing room preview of the new show. And thanks in particular to Kate Webster, friend of the podcast and friend of mine, who is one of those exciting people who has started off as a comedy fan, seen tons of shows, kind of always been around to the extent that they've become involved as a member of the community and uh, now is a comedian herself and is so familiar with my work and is so adept at saying, that bit's good, but it's not part of this show. And you just go, oh, that's a really good point. So thank you, Kate. I really appreciated that, uh, that chat we had afterwards. Come along during the Edinburgh Festival every day from the first Saturday to the last Sunday, apart from the 16th, where I shall be doing a runner to the seaside um, for, my, for my exciting day off with my family. Every day, every other day at 2.50. It's called End Of and it's looking bloody great. Let's get back to John Luke Roberts. Let's talk about your origin in written comedy. Mm -hmm. Before you... Because Golier is obviously a big thing and I'm sure you went to Golier with certain things and came back with those things and some other things. So Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get to that. But as I said before, one of one of the things that's really fascinating is, is for me is seeing you change from being a writer mm-hmm. to being a sort of an, a, a, a doer. Mm-hmm. So, how did you bring yourself to writing comedy? I feel like I saw your set for "So You Think You're Funny." I feel oh, I saw one you? of the heats. Were you doing stuff about a dentist yeah, and his anaesthetist? Yeah. Or like they passing notes passing on the back notes of their teeth to each other. By writing them on teeth. Yeah, like getting people... Like, yeah, That's like, a while ago now, isn't it? Flirting with each other by passing notes. Never worked that routine, but I like the well, idea. Well, it did, because, I mean, on the night... I remember, actually, there was controversy on the night because I think you knocked Joe Wilkinson out of the competition. Well, he knocked me out of the BBC. Did oh, he? No, <laughs> no, 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 it was the other way around. Um, he knocked me out of So You Think You're Funny, and then I knocked him out of the... 
knocked him out. I got through that round. Of course. He got, you know. Um, I think it was, in many ways, well, I say it was far too early for me. To be honest, I feel like it's only in the last few years I've actually worked out how to do this. Um, I hadn't really got a clue. I did a bunch between the heats and the final of the BBC thing. I did a whole load. Of, I realise I've gone off topic, but I'm, I may as well carry on with this sentence. I did a load of open mic gigs thinking, God, I need more stage time. And it screwed me up. Really? It made me doubt all these things and it made because I did, me... Sorry, go on, interrupt you. It, it, it made me not... Uh, it, I was learning the wrong things from the audience. What things were you learning? Well, one, I mean, playing to nine, uh, nine um, non-English speakers in, the mo- in uh, what was it called, monkey business. <laughs> uh, you know, you're not going to get a huge amount from that. It taught me to care about them in the wrong way at the wrong time. I had to find my voice or find out what I wanted to do before really road testing that with audiences and, and finding out what of that I could do. Because you don't get to choose how you're funny. You have to find out how you're funny and audiences let you know. But if you go in just willing to be funny in whatever they, they want, then you lose all anything special. Because you're just feeding up something that they're that they want without putting the without without the, the part of the exchange which is what you want. Yes, that's a really. I'm just reflecting on what a really good point that is. That's very well put. I think at the time you you were you had me. I had you down as a very uh, a very hard worker and a very focused and very driven. What, what were you doing in life at the time when you started doing stand-up? I was at university, I think. Well, did you go to Cambridge? Yeah. I'm going to get Cambridge Vine from you. I don't yeah, know if yeah. I knew that. Or if well, it's the, it's the, is, it, is it saying university rather than mentioning a place? <laughs> <laughs> it might be, yeah. Um, what, yeah. Did you, what did you study at Cambridge? English literature. Okay. I was incredibly busy. Um, I realised I was a student group. But we had very short... We had eight-week terms. I'd, you'd have an essay a week, another couple of things on top of that. Um... I would be doing a couple of two or three plays a term. When I look back and I and then doing sketches and stuff mm-hmm. and writing comedy and then, then were you trying doing stand up as well. Were you doing yeah, I was doing okay. the smokers and things. Um, and who were the smoke, smokers and things? Those are oh, sorry, special. Oh, I'm so things. sorry. I know, I know, I know, no, 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 I understand. No, it's my, it's my, it's my fault, not yours. It's my fault, not yours. No. Um, so it's like a, a show. Um, you know, have you heard of, you've got, um, uh, how can I, what would you, what would be your, um, you know when there's a knees up? <laughs> uh, so it, uh, it was a, a sketch show every two weeks. You'd audition okay. in this, uh, you'd audition to put your, uh, I never felt part of the Footlights at the same time as I was definitely part of the Footlights. Like I was on the board, I think I was the vice president or something like that. But I, I, I think that. I was the vice president or something. Well, I was the vice president. Yeah, I, you, thank you for catching that. Um, that weird you're downplaying it. I'm trying to. Well, no, but I also, I didn't feel part of it. And I think, I, 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 something about it, it was very much a boys club. Now, and there were brilliant women in it, but the energy was so masculine. It kind of reminded me of school. I kind of didn't like it. Um, it was a lot of misfits finding the ways in which they could be the alpha, I guess, and for me too, uh, playing that game. Just this, it was so, everything was so important when really you're mucking around being silly and doing stupid things on stage. There was this real feeling of um, the audience had to, 
and this is obviously it's just my perception of it and it's just the where I was when it was going on but that as an audience member and I think this is something I cult- cultivated as a performer myself there was this feeling that if you didn't laugh it's because you weren't like in on the joke like you weren't smart enough to get that and I think that certainly at the time it really felt like you needed a couple of years in the real world after to get some uh, get that knocked out of you that idea that the audience had to come all the way to you do you think that you, you personally, in that environment, do you have a sort of inverted snobbery? Do you quite enjoy not being a member of the boys' club? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, because you are dressed as you are currently je- dressed, and you have a, gro- a moustache, which has grown out, and now you have a beard, but the beard isn't as big as the moustache... Mm-hmm. You, your hair is all over the place. You're wearing pretty hipster kind of stuff and neckerchief and things, as the, the picture accompanying this will uh, confirm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you have made an effort since Cambridge to really get away from the things that are associated with Cambridge. No, I, actually, I don't think that's quite right. Um, in fact, it's sort of letting go of an effort, if that may... I have a... <laughs> I'm, I really like not conforming, but I'm really scared into conforming. So actually, the elements of me now which feel like, oh, it's not, I'm not part of this, this, oh, I can do this, oh, I can stick this stupid pink neckerchief, oh, this is fine, oh, I'm allowed to not conform, is just me trying to let go of the bit which is always saying, you meant to do it like this, Got this it. is how you, this is what you do. Um, and that's a, that's a daily battle. Uh, <laughs> Go on, is it? Um, well, you always learn. You have to relearn and unlearn and relearn and learn and da 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 bah, all that stuff. You, what are you glossing over? I've picked you up on it's a daily battle and I feel like you've slightly... I catch myself... Just catch myself... Um... Oh, battle is the wrong... <laughs> Wait. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hmm. I don't think I'm really glossing over anything because I think I'm talking about it lightly, because actually the only way I've learned to sort of deal with this stuff is to treat it lightly. It's as soon as you tense up and you hold on to it. And um... What stuff are you talking about? What do you mean? When you say the only way of dealing with this stuff is to treat it lightly, what sort of stuff? Uh... 
let's get back to comedy because actually I can't quite go down this route. Totally fine. I'm sorry. No, I suddenly realised that we were sort of talking at two slightly different... Um, but in terms of the conforming and the not conforming, and I do think that's valuable. I, it, it's interesting to me because stage is a place where I'm allowed... Uh, it's a safe environment to not be normal. Yes. I suppose. Yes. What was the pressure on you to be normal? Um, was that was that a pressure? Was that like a an objective pressure, or was that a pressure that you felt from circumstances? Or yeah, I think mean, it's a it's a psychological pressure. It's okay. largely there for myself, and I can sort of go through the things which mean it's there, but um, not unless I'm paying you sixty pounds an hour to do it. Um, Wait, I think there, but there is something I think interesting in terms of comedy and the rest of it. Here, I'm not sure the pressure pressure is real. I suppose that's part of the thing. I don't think it is. It's self inflicted. But I, uh, all these ways in which things are meant to be done in the world. For me, comedy is a way of of going. Oh, they're not necessarily. You can look at things differently. In fact, that's sort of the whole point of absurdism, is everything you think, this logical way you've... You, this, you, your attempt to make sense of the world isn't right. In fact, the scary thing and the exhilarating thing is how little sense there is behind anything. Absolutely. Yes. That's an arresting uh, <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, th- I sort of think silly comedy, absurdist comedy is a way of confronting people with that, but leave them happy about it rather than a quivering mess in the corner because there is a joy in in just going, oh, fine, it's all nonsense. Yes. Rather than just going, oh, my God, it's all nonsense. I hope somebody knows what they're doing and is running this thing because otherwise we're going to... Yes. Well, that's really interesting because I think you, of the absurdists that I've spoken to on the show, I feel like you are the, the, the biggest theoretically or, you know, intellectual... You're the, probably the biggest intellectual absurdist that I've had <laughs> on the show. Um, I have the absurdists and the kind of sort of hairy turbo clowns and kind of, you know, prop people and clowns and stuff like this. You're the one that I think of. And, I, I, you know, I respect and admire all that, that oeuvre enormously. If I'm faintly uh, uh, rude about it, it's, it's from a place where... Uh, I, I, I'm enormously envious of the sort of the creative freedom and the risk taking and that kind of stuff. Um, but I think of that of comics of that ilk, you are very intellectual, and I know that because I know that you were an intellectual kind of writer before yeah, letting well, go of it all and getting your pixelated. Before we go back to the writing, which we should do, I realise we. Uh, um, that's actually sort of the they don't go together. Being absurdist and being intellectual, they don't make sense. They're pulling in different. They're pulling in different ways. Um, oh, somebody about my last show, of course, it was the only, like... This one person wrote something bad about my show on the internet who wasn't a professional critic, it wasn't anyone. It was the only thing, really, that was particularly negative about the show. And they just wrote... And it still made me really sad. They wrote... Um, but then I read it again, and suddenly, after this ego bash... <laughs> what they, they wrote... Um, I love absurdists, but this didn't make any sense. <laughs> and it was so... Um, Realising that they had 
completely unselfconsciously written that. I thought that was beautiful. And my, the show I'm working on at the moment, the idea is, and it's something I've been bubbling away for a while and suddenly realised, oh, this is that show, um, is an attempt to, to do a defence of absurd, absurdism. Okay. To defend it, to rationally defend it. And obviously, the better you defend it, the worse it becomes. The more you can logically explain why this is a good thing to do, the more you can logically explain anything you're doing... Mm-hmm. When it's absurdist, the less of an absurdist you are. Yes, okay. So you're making an absurd logical defence of absurdism. Yeah. Yes, quite lovely. That's a very you idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the reason I've kind of, kind of wanted to pin you down on a couple of those things is mm-hmm. because it seems to me, when we were talking about control earlier on, mm-hmm. and you know you're, what we're talking about in your case, I think, is a sort of really controlled wildness... Or, a real, or the tension between control and wildness. Yeah, I think that's... Do you know what I mean? I like that's oh, right, yeah. Yeah. And, and I just feel like, on. to me, that feels like, oh, that must be difficult. That must be sort of painful the, or... Uh, it makes the creative process quite... Um, uh, well, uh, wait, I'll log that. Uh, what I, <laughs> um, actually, this is sort of what we're talking about. Um, when I was writing originally, I'd write very silly jokes, but they'd fit into one-liners. Yes. So they were these little units, and I think I thought of them as units. And I even convinced myself, I, I didn't even convince myself, I thought that, I, the, that if the writing was good enough, I wouldn't really have to perform it. And in fact, doing an act out or anything like that, I thought as, a, as cheap or somehow letting down my material. Yeah, I And so I just yeah. stand on stage... Uh, in this quite aloof way and deliver these... Declaiming your one-liners. Declaiming my yes. one-liners and all that stuff. And I think it was various misunderstandings which had led me to that point. But um, I think... I thought the tension, putting it in these terms, was between... Was that the silliness of the idea and the focus of the writing? But that's not enough. There's it's still... Slow down, sorry. You thought the tension was the silliness of the idea and the focus of the writing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So that, that's the kind of um, Apollo Dionysus uh, yes, side, okay. Logos mythos. But you, you thought that was the case. Yeah, it was not, it's not enough because the silliness isn't enough because words end up just being words. You have to let the freedom in some other way. Words are too Logos. Words are too logos. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not familiar enough. Oh, it's the uh, same thing. It's, it's largely from um, Lucy, uh, Lucy Hopkins' show last year, which was okay. wonderful, which is all about this idea of the tension between um, logos, which is logic, which is masculine, and mythos, which is okay. uh, myth and feminine and all these different things. Okay. Um, so, so what? So you recognised that that wasn't enough, the, the silliness of the idea and the... I recognised that. I didn't... Sure. Um... It took me a long, long time. I mean, it took me a long, long time to realise that wasn't enough. It took me... I did a clown workshop, and that's really what suddenly... Just just by being told there's a system yeah. um, in silliness. A, 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 in fact, it was Dr Brown, doing a week with him, changed mm-hmm. everything in my perception of it. This realisation that, oh, doing things for the laugh is enough. And if you do something and get to laugh, do it again, because why wouldn't you want to? Uh, they like you when you're silly, do that more. Yes. So suddenly there's a logic there, but it, that was a way for me to get through into letting myself Yes, there, there is a, a logic, but in some ways a logic is quite an odd way to think of it. Like mm. I think of it, it's a sensuality. Do yeah. you mean? It's like, it's, in some ways it's the opposite of logic. It's like it's just feeling, a hunger, it's, it's feeling a feeling. rather yeah. than um, uh, thinking. 
Yes. Yeah. I think that's part of why I'm fascinated with, with your, specifically your journey, because I feel like that isn't a thing that I ever managed to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I sort of have this picture of you, this cartoon picture of you, arriving at Goliath, day one, <laughs> with a big file of all your jokes. Go, I've got my jokes here, I'm going to learn how to do my jokes in a clowning way. I'm, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, you, you going to that environment were not just the next guy going to that environment. You were someone who, I have proved a lot of, I, I won't identify them, but I did Dr. Brown, I did like a, a long weekend workshop with, uh, with Phil Burgers, and um, he, there was another comic who I won't identify, and they were unable to stop doing the thing that they did right. for the rest of their comedy. You know, it was like, I've got this thing that's the way I'm funny. And Phil was going, you've got to let go of that. Show me something else. Show me something else. And they were unable to in that weekend environment, as you might expect. Yeah. I think if it had been working, I wouldn't have let go of it. Maybe. Or maybe there was always a limit, because it did work sometimes. It wasn't enough. I didn't, and I, I went to, I was excited by the unknown of going into this world. I don't know. It's nothing. It's something that I definitely needed to do, and a lot of people don't. Yeah. It was exactly what I needed and exactly what's helped me change in the last few years. Um, it's not for everyone. And it's, it, yeah, a lot of people do it naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like people who are naturally happy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you go. How are you doing this? Yeah, yeah. How is this an instinct for you? Yeah, but uh, yeah, but that learning to let go. That um, but uh, talking about um, you mentioned that you've not. not I, it all comes down to creating something in the room, to having something actually happening in the stand-up room, uh, the comedy room, or whatever, with an audience. Like this is really happening now. Uh, now, clowning's one way of doing that, very, like, or, well, bits of clowning or that, like, creating things, creating exciting energies there. The stand-up way of doing it, there's lots, but, I mean, the, uh, there's that... Make it feel like a conversation. Yeah. Which you're very able at. I absolutely cannot do. And okay. I've seen people absolutely... F- I can't do it. It's partly because when I'm having a conversation with somebody, especially if they're new, I immediately start thinking, like, one person, one-on-one, I'll be going, how do you have a conversation? Uh, so how on earth am I meant to do it with a room <laughs> mean, of like hundred same, people? In the same way that you might think, how do you breathe again? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, uh, wait, God, what, 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 what order do I do it in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. I, I immediately get self-conscious like that, so I can't create that. It's why I think also almost the worst audience disruption to have to deal with is when there's just two people chatting. Yes. And you hear the rest of the crowd just slowly going quiet if you don't deal with it because they're going, oh, oh they're not here. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're not. Li- this performer doesn't. He's not in the same place as us. Mm-hmm. He's not aware of what we're aware of. Why is this? And they slowly just quieten down. Then, of course, so you have to deal with it, and then you have to find the way of dealing with it without creating the problem. Yes. Or it feeling like you're creating yes. the problem. Yes. Mm. Well, we were in the middle of something. Well, we were in the middle of... Um, Sorry. I, I, so... This is... Uh, this is... Ah! This is the creative problem process, uh, is that for me to write the way I do and to get the ideas and to get the good ideas, I have to have this kind of scatterbrain thing and be generative for a long time, which means the editing is quite tricky. So as you come up to now, like we're heading up to Edinburgh, trying to do the editing mind at the same time as the generative mind uh, is pretty stressful. Do you work with the director? I have done for the last two years, yeah. And how is that that process? Talk to me about... We're finding our feet with it. He's somebody who... um, uh, Sam Bailey, uh, he's got a theatre background, a filmmaking background, and he's done a bit at Goliath, and a bit with Spy Monkey... So 
we have enough of the shared it's language. You don't often get mentioned on the podcast. Don't they? Fucking hell, they're incredible. Aren't oh, they? there was the, the nude scene I was talking about earlier. <laughs> oh, was it from uh, Coot? Coot. Oh, yes, what a oh show! Oh my god! When you said the nude scene, when I think of <sighs> nude scenes, that's like, yeah, I mean, what a show! And that's actually a perfect example. Like Stefan and um, uh, Itor in yes. that. Uh, that bit when they're gleefully naked. Yes. They're delighted to be nude, but they're not proud of it. Yes. It's yes. Wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And, funnily enough, that just the end of Cooped, when the dummy reveal, the dummy leaps up from the chair, is the only other time I can think of when I've been horrified and, and, <laughs> and laughing at the same time. Like, screaming but and, and laughing at the same time. God, what a show. Yeah, they're wonderful. And Aitor is a fantastic teacher. Yes, I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends who've, uh, who've, who've done some work with him. Um, but anyway, yeah, Sam and I have enough of a shared language so that we can, for us to be able to talk about it properly. This is another useful thing which Sam would hate me to say. Sam doesn't, um, a lot of times Sam doesn't get a joke, doesn't understand jokes or my jokes. He's not quite, he doesn't quite get them, which means that I then have to make sure it's funny. That's great! Without the joke. Oh, that's Perfect. And that's actually how I sort of think about... I always have to kind of think about shows now. It's got to be funny. The jokes are sort of the least important thing. They may as well be as good as they can possibly be, but the show should be funny, and then you put the jokes on top. Okay. This is um, a thing I noticed in watching your most recent show. That you, This is soon to be available on Go Faster Strike. Yeah. Look upon my works, you mighty in despair, brackets, all caps. Yeah. And, oh, and let's just hear from the horse's mouth. The name of this year's show is... Um, all I want to do is FX gunshots with an FX gun reloading and an FX cash register and perform some comedy. <laughs> it's just so wonderful. And arguably works even better written down. <laughs> yes, there's more kind of yeah, release yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm still getting used to, like, when I say it, I'm not sure whether I should be going, um, oh, it's called All I Want to Do is... <laughs> yeah. And a perform some comedy. Yeah, I think it should be. I, mean, I yeah, feel like... Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, the uh, one thing, uh, one element of your work that I noticed is that you... One thing I'd like to talk about is the way you discover a game and then take that game or that character into your next show and into your next show, how the character of your father became a vampire, became the portent of death. But also within that... I, when you say the jokes, are, you know, the jokes are a thing you sprinkle on top, it's quite an interesting way to see that you as... A comic who, for example, your bit where you slam every member of the audience, mm-hmm. you do a withering put down on every member of the yeah, audience yeah. from index cards, as I remember. I'm now hazy. Yeah, no, it's index, and, yeah. Um, and that really worked with my dad. Remember, a girl, when you were in the Pleasance Dome one year, oh, yeah. a girl tried to steal them afterwards, and I caught her doing it, and the police were called, oh, and it was, it was the very security eggy. guard, it was horrible, and yes. she was crying, and I just, oh. It was horrible, but she really, was just, like, they were just, all they handwritten were, cards. They were, there, was, there were two very drunk... People. You specifically said, please don't really steal these sorted. painstakingly handwritten cards. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, horrible. Um, but uh, the idea of there is a character, there is a, a game, mm-hmm. a costume, a, you mm-hmm. know, a game going on, and then you do some jokes, then that person mm-hmm. says some jokes. And I wondered how you felt about the relationship between those things. Because to my mind, you are a writer who became this incredible physical risk-taker um, the, the Chaucerian thing at the mm-hmm. beginning of Look Upon My Works Ye Mighty and Despair brackets all caps uh, at the beginning of that coming out as Chaucer speaking in this kind of cod Chaucerian half naked um, and and then kind of that character then does some one liners and then there's the portent yeah, of death yeah. he is the portent of death and that character then does some one liners uh-huh. do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. there's kind of are you aware of that as a trope of yours? yeah it's partly safety net um, I'd kind of love to try a show where I can just let go of the jokes. 
But um, I do. But like, I do like jokes. Yes. Um, but wait, what's the safety net about? It's the provable thing. It's going all right. You might not think me and this fake beard and this cape is funny, but like these, these are definitely jokes. These definitely work. It's a kind of it, a sort of proving that I'm able to do it. I suppose. To who? To oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, for the benefit of the listener, uh, John just did a, a sort of a oh, <laughs> mea culpa, like to myself, I suppose, kind of a mime. <laughs> it's also sort of a. a I do love jokes. I almost think of it in two different ways. The jokes are for after the show. Like, because you... Therefore, the audience will go, oh, it's really funny. Such and such happened. Oh, I remember that joke. I remember that. Whereas at the time, it's the funniness which... That is a phenomenal description of it. Yes, okay. Um, If you really laugh at something, you don't remember that joke. Like... You don't remember. I'm so that. glad to hear someone else say that. I feel that's a failing of mine that I don't no, remember everyone's jokes. So you but sort yeah. of, the, the, the jokes are something for the thinking mind, and really doing the show. What you're mainly appealing to is the feeling, the gut, the um, ah, I'm laughing and I don't know why I'm laughing. That's the most. That's the oh that laugh, the bizarre laugh. Wonderful. Um, uh, but I, you know, I write. It's a discipline. It's one of the and I sit down and I'll write. I'll number, I'll write one to ten on a page and sit down in the morning and try and write ten jokes to fit or ten ideas. Uh, and at different times of the year, uh, this is when I look back through my notebooks, different percentages of those jokes are any good at all. Okay. Um, but then I have these. And I'm just really learning at the moment, doing multi-character shows, starting to do that, like, oh, which way you can shift the... Which joke fits with which person? Suddenly, sometimes there'll be a sudden, oh, that really works for them. Sometimes, being, oh, I guess I could put this over here. There's also things like when I came up with a portent of death. It's like the insults. And once you have the formula, yes. once you go, oh, if I sit down and I write ways in which people are going to die, yes. that's a way of, oh, this is a new game. This is a new angle to come at. Last year, I just sat down and started, I read a book called The Interrogative Mode, which is a novel written all in questions, directed at the reader. Um, it's brilliant and weird. And it's like, hang on, what happens if I just try and write questions? And then I discovered that coming at thinking about a thing and then thinking about a question about that thing suddenly made things flow much, much better. And I was writing jokes just by coming at them as thinking, like, well, how about if I write a question? Can what you give me the... an example? Um, so, the, yeah, last year there was the... Um, so a joke from last year's show which fits that. And I have notebooks full of these. And some of them work and they don't make sense as jokes, but they still work. Uh, how did the village people meet? They obviously met, led such different lives. And that I wouldn't have come to that if I yeah. hadn't been thinking, what are questions we can... So I remember kind of thinking, oh, the village people, what would be a joke about the village people? Um, why are they... Um, who, uh, uh, what's their... Costumes that would be something like a fancy dress, but and just going through it and asking questions, and then the question becomes okay. a joke. But equally, like one of the things was um, how many, uh, how good would the costume be for a goat to win Crofts, and would it be worth the bother? Okay. Now, I don't really, I wouldn't have been able to write a joke about uh, Crofts or goats if I hadn't just come at it mentally thinking. Let's ask a question. Okay. It, it might just be unique to me, but it has really freed up a lot. And some of them don't end up as questions. 
uh, in the end. But just that any way that you can... That, anything to get over that, looking at Paige and thinking, I need to write a joke. Fucking right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to me about some other, as a, as a prolific writer, what sorts of um, other techniques are there for getting yourself out of that space? I mean, that's, the, that's technique number one, isn't it? Make sure that you are not looking at a blank piece of paper or a screen thinking, I've got to write something. Volume is the main thing. <laughs> like just being prepared to write and, and being prepared to throw away, I think. Um, uh, I've just had an idea for some sort of app that you could get all of your one-liners that don't work and when you do your editing process you put them in a particular folder and then the app just randomly selects one from the last ten years <laughs> every day and just texts it to you at lunchtime see if it starts off something <laughs> like yeah, no, about sifting and regenerating I do use I use random word generators okay I'll go on the internet I'll like get, generate ten random words okay. and just look at them Try to connect them to each other, or no, no, just, no, no. just look at a word and go, right, what would be a thing about that word? I mean, I feel like you could do that with aphorisms, but almost every aphorism has been uh, like mined. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the main way for uh, like, I couldn't really. I think I write jokes to formulas, um, and I do not want to know what those formulas are. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I couldn't quite explain to I could explain how you put together a one-liner and the release of tension and the, the twist and the bit when it means something else and all this stuff, but I couldn't really tell you how I write a joke. It's it's mainly through not thinking about it, just writing down whatever. And it does mean if my mood is generally up and I'm relaxed in my life and um, uh, happy and free, then it's much easier to write jokes because you're able to wander around in your mind and just have ideas just fold in together. My favourite jokes are generally the ones that come to me without me trying. Can you give us an example of... Can you give me an example of your favourite joke that just fell into your head and your favourite joke that you had to work to mind? Well, my favourite joke that fell into my head is one that I haven't been able to use for years because um, I think it's so obvious, like other people do it. It was then, it's the more people you hear doing it, you think, oh, well, there's no point in kind of... Yeah. And this obviously isn't... They're not taking it from me. They've just uh, stumbled upon the same idea. Um, I think I had a really nice phrasing of it. Um, but then it was the obvious phrasing. And what was it? It was, um, everybody always asks where Wally is, but they never think to ask how he is. <laughs> and they wonder why he's always hiding. <laughs> and it's, that, it's the shift at the end which yes, made, that course. really made that joke. And it's because that's... It's a joke based on emotion. And yeah. having an emotion joke, oh, wonderful. Having any kind of point of actual human contact in this little word puzzle, brilliant. Uh, and it, melancholy, that's a good emotion to use, that's a good one to have there. And that came to me fully formed. Um, maybe it's because I heard someone else tell it and forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one I have to work at? Hmm. Like your, your favourite one, your favourite one that you just, you know, you'd be buried with. That I've had to sit that you, down. That you've had to sit down. Grind out. Yeah. Oh, um, I, it's not. It's not like a. Well, it's not not a crowd pleaser. It's not. A, I wouldn't do it. At, uh, um, I'm a bit like Spider Man, except I was bitten by a radioactive president of Ireland. I didn't get any uh, powers to speak of, though. It's largely a ceremonial office. <laughs> 
So talk to me about how you ground that oh, out. So long, the... It's so long ago. But it started with, like, you know, Spider-Man. That's a good, the, the, the origin story of Spider-Man. That's a Bit good... by a radioactive thing. Yeah, everyone and it. everyone knows it. That's a yeah. good bit of shared knowledge. It's a system. It's a little bit of logic. It's a system, so you can sl- sl- slot other things into that. And then I think it was just grinding out, like, well, what would be a funny thing to get the power of? Yes. Oh, what is what if it's something powerless? But there's nothing funny about like how do you know something's power? Wait, you've got these ceremonial. It was it was just piecing it together from that. Oh, like, and there's a joke in my new show because I'm playing this witch character, um, and I was uh, I suddenly thought, oh, if you want to eat children, you build a house out of gingerbread. What if you want to? Uh, what if you don't like the taste of children? What if you like other professions or things or, yes. or like nationalities? Like um, what? You, yeah, if you, uh, <laughs> So if, if you if you really like the taste of estate agents, do you build a house out of um, naive young uh, uh, like graduate? Uh, what do you, and I wrote a list of all these different things and a list of like things that you tempt them in with, like uh, you know uh, sushi or oh, Japanese. So if you like the taste of Japanese people, then you'd build your house out of raw fish. Or, and, and 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 I thought, oh, this could be a whole five minute bit. And then it ended up that's all the way down to I like the taste of adults, so I built my house out of dolmio. <laughs> which really lures them in but only one day a week yeah. and that's, that's all that sort of came out of that but that was yes. a machine running to get God, to the end it's point it's such a weird feeling isn't it when, when you realise that all of the work you've just point, put in thinking you were going to get five minutes you, that's, that feeling when you simultaneously go oh for God's sake but that is good like yeah. I can that's going to be in my back pocket for a while in a way I think I tend towards that like I'll I will my head will just force something down to its smallest piece so I, I've never really I, 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 I'd love to be able to tell stories and I, I found ways to do it but I can't just with a microphone very easily tell an anecdote because I'll just try and shift that down to the quickest way to get to that laugh. So the, all the performance stuff is effectively a way to put that breathing space in and that other, in terms of, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the joke, it's, well, it's no fun just hearing one line off, one line off. You, you find these other things, you let things grow and you build that relationship that you can with an audience through anecdotes in a different way. Because I'm here, they're actually meeting me rather than um, this wall telling jokes. Do you have the success that you deserve? Well, deserve's a funny word, isn't it? Um, I have lots of ego battles. Like, I, I, I get frustrated, I think. Um, I'm not doing badly. Like, I, I, this is my... Writing and performing is my career, and it's earning me a living. Um... There have been times when I find it hard to... I find it frustrating, makes me angry, makes me upset that things haven't... Uh, and that something doesn't end up being more successful than it is. At the same time, if I'd had a lot of success early on, I'd never have learnt the things and built the tools that I have. So I sort of feel like, rationally, as long as I keep getting better at this, uh, they're not having the level of success that at times I'd have liked to might actually have been good for me as an artist I feel like that and then I wonder to myself come on Stu are you just successful people probably don't need to think that for themselves <laughs> <laughs> no there's obviously but I, I'm not well the, the thing is I think actually the 
I genuinely think the thing to aspire to is to become a better artist and want to be... Like, that's sort of the truth. And this thing which makes you compare yourself to every, every one of your friends who's doing better than you, every show which is getting success, and think, oh, but that's... Aren't they doing something I did? Every, all those ego battles, all those... They're not helpful in making good art. A decent amount of competitiveness is probably... Oh, God, I am so competitive. I was just... Right, I was listening, you know the Simon Munnery thing? The, um, it's not a race, it's a dance. Yes. I thought, oh, that's beautiful, it's wonderful. And then immediately I thought, okay, but where are the judges sat and what criteria <laughs> are they judging this dance off? It did me really well for ages, it's not a race, it's a dance. And then someone pointed out, yeah, but you can have a dance off. I'm like, yeah, you can, yeah, <laughs> thank you for ruining this thing that made me feel great for a year and a half. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I... I, I, I but I wouldn't say that I haven't had the success I deserve because I sort of think, well, there must be a reason. So, but you but and I keep looking at myself yeah. a few years ago and realizing, ah, I couldn't do. That. I mean, I watched the video of my last show and I was like, ah, that, this is that, this is what I need to do now to mm-hmm. make this something. Um, yeah, so oh, this is a problem. I'm I'm going to work out how to fix it. Oh, that's something I can't do. I'm going to try and do something I can't do and, and, and fill in these gaps. I mean, I'd love to... <laughs> it's still, like, on a, on a practical basis, it's pretty annoying. Right? It's pretty annoying. It's not even like... like um, so, I, the show I did last year in Edinburgh... Um, oh, yes, it's really annoying. But I don't feel I don't... I don't think I deserve more success. I just really like it. That's a great... I think that's a good place to be. That is a healthy thing to do. Yeah, it's really annoying, isn't it? Think, um, of all the, think of all the money you could have. Think of how much easier you could have... I don't know the level... Are you touring? Do you talk your show? No, it's not even... And, and each time there's a kind of frustrating, not quite based on... So I had a, a really good Edinburgh last year. I, I sold out, effectively, a run of a 100-seater room, which for me was lovely, and um, because of the model I was there. And it felt to me like the show there was a buzz around the show now it's impossible to know because you're only like exposed to people talking to you um but then it's trying like the the show's afterlife has been quite small I, I toured it to a few places i um it was really nice in those places i recorded a dvd for go faster stripe that was really fun i'm doing a little run in london um but i'd love to just be able to make a show that i'm proud of like that and then yeah, tour it, then just show it to people and have a decent number of people to see that show so I can really feel, and I've never felt this yet, ah, I can let that show go now. I've done everything that was in that show. And I keep trying to solve the problem of it, and hopefully eventually I will. I think you are... I think what you need is... uh... Um, a character part in a sitcom, <laughs> your own or someone else's, to bring a greater audience to you that you can then thin out by being too weird <laughs> and end up like this sort of three hundred seater touring audience. Maybe. Maybe you, it, it is tricky, isn't it? Because you, what you do is not um, lowest common denominator stuff. It's it's you know. Well, no, that's of it. it. Yeah, I'm making it difficult for myself. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I, I am. Uh, I'm getting better at letting people in to it. Like, I generally now think... Because basically, you just need an audience to realise, oh, hang on, there's nothing to get. Yeah. I'm a, oh, right, it's just stupid, fine. Um, and so just letting them in on that, just saying, no, you're allowed to... 
a bit like with the Chaucer thing, taking this ridiculously like highfalutin thing, and it's speaking a stupid voice with a, a, a rubber penis. It's just letting it be silly. Yes. Yes, and so you were with with an with an audience at the moment. I suppose you ha- with an audience of like Joe Public, you have to instruct them as to what the thing is, what the genre is. Whereas I suppose the more you keep going and the more your audience starts to come back, that's that tip, that tipping point Tim Key talked about, where oh, yeah, more yeah. than half of them know what the territory. Oh is. yeah, well they're educating the rest of the crowd. They're educating them. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and actually. I kind of think in Edinburgh I'm Touchwood there. Yep. Like in Edinburgh, oh, this is, I have enough of a recurring audience. And it's also, you have to do it long enough, it's no good, because people don't come back every year. That took yeah. quite a long time to realise. Yeah. You've got to get enough for it to be a rolling one of the three years previously, a few of them coming back. You've got back to do to three it. years to show you're serious. Yeah, 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 <laughs> then yeah, you've got to do another five yeah. to start skipping. But the thing is, all the same time at doing this, you're learning how to do it. And you, mm. you are getting better and you're building up the stuff. I, so... Yeah, you, you, the part of it is like you're building an audience while also learning how to like. Oh, I'm going to mix some horrible metaphor. You're you're doing two things at once. You're saying I'm worth watching at the same time as going how the hell do I do this? Yes, and how do you keep doing it again? How do you top? I mean, I was I, I try not to uh, consider the awards to mean anything apart from some random. You know, oh, there's some people think there's these some, things there's are some good. quite well informed people. Yeah, absolutely. You didn't get nominated for Stadad Up, which I thought was one of the best things I'd seen at the Fringe, full stop. Did you expect to? Did you... Not expect to, but were you disappointed when you weren't? I've never expected to. And I've always been disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, no, I... Uh, I, I by that time, I sort of knew. Like, Stadad Up was a very odd one for, in terms of that. And, and this is something I come back to quite a lot. My peers and my audience... Like, I was watching people walk out of that show... I could see their faces. They were like weeping and grinning and all these things, which mean, wow, they've been through something. Wow, this has worked. But it seemed it was completely ignored by, uh, not just by the industry, really, by critics. It, it, it was playing to big crowds and it was, it, and my peers all seemed to like it. My audiences all seemed to like it. It seemed to be something special, but just flew past the, that side of things, I guess. I'd love to have done that show more. I think that show should have been done a lot more, but I could only... Well, when you go on I'm a Celebrity... Yeah, that's bring back the, the dead dad show. Yeah, 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 that's the one you could do at the Apollo. I'm worried if I'm talking too candidly about this, really. But it is... I, in, I, in what respect? What, what's the what's Because well, it's what's never nice. Is, I don't like, I like talking about like, where you, what you're expert, how good you think you are, the rest of the ego stuff. Because um, none of it's objective. And all of it is driven by that. Oh, validate me. I want some validation. Um, and every time I go to see somebody's show... I relax out of that competitive mindset a bit more. You go, oh, we're all just playing. That's a really fun. good point. I find, I don't, know, so I don't know if this is quite the point you were making or if I've taken it the wrong direction, but I certainly hear about someone being really great. Oh, you should see them, they're great. And part of you goes, oh, you are they? I'll be the judge of that. And then you see them and two minutes in, they're brilliant. And you think, they're one of us. You I'm so proud to be like them. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're having me, oh, yeah, I have these... This ego thing is always there, and it's it's very it's not nearly as helpful as it would like you to think. I think. <laughs> that we, so to wrap up then, and we'll do we'll do some extra stuff uh, if you're okay. But to to wrap up the bigger part of our conversation on the subject of ego, we've mentioned ego battles a few times. What 
what do you imagine to be the future of your battle with your ego? Do you, is, there, is there a way out of having to have those battles? I would love to be able to let go of it, to let go of sort of that professional feeling of being left behind or of being like uh, somehow envious or, or of other people's success. And I think I'm not going to be able to. And so I think it's finding the relationship whereby I understand those things and I don't care about them. So I no- notice that like little pang of, I think, all oh, right, that's that. And let it go rather than because it's, it's just not help, it's not helpful creatively uh, that's for sure and what's the future of your relationship with control yeah I don't know I think it's finding a balance like everything I uh, there's so much fun to be had in a loss of control uh, and so much joy and so uh, the show I'm building at the moment is very controlling. But after that, I hope to be able to let myself... Uh, the show I'm building at the moment is very controlling. Uh, but then, yeah. It's balance. It's all a balance, isn't it? Do you, feel, do you feel shriven after performances? When you've done... You, you, you've done you're doing quite a lot of... There's, some of it's quite sweaty. Some of it is quite shouty. Some of it is quite high energy. There's uh, a lot of stuff going on. It's been a on. while since I've done... Uh, Shows which left me physically and emotionally... Like, this, the Dad Up show was emotionally just exhausting. Physically quite tiring as well. The show I'd done before that was about a breakup, um, and that I sort of tricked the audience into thinking it was emotionally uh, hard work when actually it was just physically hard work, like I was getting water thrown over me and flour in my face. Was this you eating lemons? Eating lemons, yeah, yeah. So, so I tricked it with all the physical stuff. And then over time, I think I just learnt... You don't need these. Uh, learnt how I've become better at it, and so I don't need all the time to use these like very real physical discomforts to get myself to the same place of vulnerability where a show can work. Are you happy? Yeah. Yeah, generally, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So that was John Luke. Plenty more stuff from him available on the extras on the private podcast, uh, by which you can access by joining comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. PayPal is how people normally do it, but other options are available. So thanks to John Luke. Thank you to uh, Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray for the use of their recording space, as they often uh, do. They've provided uh, some fabulous space there in which to record. Thanks to Barry and everyone else there. And um, who else must I thank? Uh, thanks to Nathan Wood, of course. Thanks to uh, thanks to Rob Smouten, who is going to be providing some very sassy new music for the show. That's right, we're changing up the theme tune, uh, and uh, that will be coming your way soon. So thanks to Rob, and a pleasure to hang out with you and Catherine at the Soho shows. And what else? I feel like there's something else I've got to say, but maybe I'm just in promo mode, and I don't need to promo so hard because the tour's nearly over. I hope you come to the Edinburgh show. Uh, I'll probably talk to you a little bit more about some... Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to talk about in the post-amble. So we'll do that in just a moment. But for now, that concludes the podcast. Don't miss John Luke's show at Edinburgh this year. Don't uh, miss it. It's called... Oh, God, it's got... Well, we mentioned it in the episode. It's got one of the best titles anything has ever had. But just search John Luke Roberts and then laugh out loud when you read the title out loud. 
Um, coming up next week, the Raymond and Mr. Timpkins Review, a podcast unlike any other for uh, some guests and an act unlike anything you've ever seen. They're doing Edinburgh as well. So uh, spreadsheet day is spreadsheet day was supposed to be this week. Let's do it this Wednesday, this Wednesday, the 27th spreadsheet day. Join the Facebook group or tweet me at ComComPod with your a screen grab of your spreadsheet for the Edinburgh Festival and make sure Goldsmith, John Luke Roberts and Raymond and Mr. Timpkins are on it. Speak to you soon. God, I sometimes feel like I do the blurbs in one breath, and then I do this at this moment where I go, oh, there we go. Post-amble time, just a quickie. I'm running round my house, figuratively, if not literally, in my pants, um, because I've just dropped off my wife and child at the airport because they've gone to Sweden to see one of my wife's friends. I had a juicy corporate gig and could not go. So they're away for four nights. And I've never done that before. I'm, I'm away from them frequently, but I'm never away from them whilst I'm at home. So I'm at home and I'm kind of mincing about the house fiddling with roll plugs and doing tiny little... I've, I've been writing a list on my note-taking app on my mobile. I've been making a list as I walk around the house of all the little... Um, Little dad jobs that I need to be getting on with. Whack a bit of no more nails on that. Bung a bigger rule plug in there. Stop that falling off the wall. Just gone out and mowed. Bought a strimmer. Within moment, I dropped them off at the airport and an hour and a half later, I'd been to Halfords and Ikea and come home and mowed the lawn and strum for the first time in about 20 years. So um, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything interesting in that. Um, I just, uh, I really... Uh, it, it's really fun. I mean, um, <laughs> it's really fun to be without my wife and child. I miss them desperately, and it was a very, it was a real pang to say goodbye to them. I was glad that the boy was asleep, so that uh, I didn't need to uh, get all upset or see him get upset. But it is. I don't mean it's fun that they've gone, but it's quite fun being in the house. <laughs> you can you can see how men go to seed. <laughs> really, I smash cut to forty five minutes later, where I'm drunk, face down in a curry with Westworld blaring in the background. But anyway, I had a really good conversation uh, this week with the Scummy Mummies podcast, Helen Thorne and Ellie Gibson. Which, if you are a parent, I highly recommend you listen to. Their children are. They're still under 10. They've been doing the show for five years, and they had a, they, so it started off being a bit more baby-slanted and young kid-slanted. But there's still there's all sorts of fascinating stuff on there, so I really just want to give a bit of a, a post-ambular shout-out to Scummy Mummies. I highly recommend listening to it. They do these incredible live shows. They were telling me all about these... Um, their live shows aren't simply their podcast live. They're loads of sketch and stand-up and characters and, and uh, interactive elements and stuff. But they're really on it. They're really like, yeah, let's write a book. Bang, we've actually done it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Rather than I, that tends to sort of... I, I kind of fart around going, oh, that'd be an interesting project. Um, but I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to them a lot, and I highly recommend their podcast. I listened to a recent episode uh, about the super mum myth, which is it's all a lot of stuff that's relevant to mums and dads. I think they do scummy mummies, and uh, if you're not a mummy, you're a scabby daddy. But I appeared on their show recently. I don't know when that one goes out. Um, it was my, my return appearance on their show. The first time I wasn't a parent, and I blagged my way on. Um, so give that a listen. And um, what else have I listening? Oh, I tell you, just while I'm recommending other podcasts, uh, I have been listening to and enjoying uh, Reese Nicholson's The Tuck Shop, which is a sort of, um, 
I always think of them as like book club podcasts, but it's like a TV, it, it's to do with um, RuPaul's Drag Race. It's kind of a recap podcast about RuPaul's Drag Race. So if you've been watching and enjoying the current series, as I and my household have been doing, uh, then get stuck into the tuck shop with uh, Reese Nicholson, a uh, comedian and friend of this show. Very, very funny guy. And uh, it's just really entertaining to, uh, to, to chew over a television series afterwards, uh, after the fact. Um, I also, on that uh, in that sphere, I really enjoy This Doesn't Sound Like Anything to Me, which is by the uh, by the podcasters of Boars, Gore and Swords, which, as you might imagine, is a Westworld podcast. So if you're up to date with Westworld, get stuck into that. That is a sort of an all-over-the-place thing, but that's because I've got a head full of um, uh, uh, no more nails and uh, it's a sunny, beautiful day and I'm going to finish all my jobs and then sit in the garden, cook myself a curry and have a pint in my house. Ha-ha! <laughs>